Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Heavenly Father, we come into your house this morning to worship you. And I pray that you would take whatever is on our minds right now, whatever distractions, frustrations, thoughts that are keeping us from you, and that you would put them off to the side that we might focus this time that every fiber of our being would be focused on you, on the worship of you, on the pursuit of you. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would mold us, that you would grow us in this time, and that in all things, this would be for your glory. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen. My dad is an entomologist, which means he studies bugs, which means we had a lot of gross dinner conversations. I remember he was... a. Uh, when I was in high school running an agricultural research and development farm. And so one summer, I went to work with him. And I noticed on his wall in his office, there was this picture I'd drawn for him when I was a kid of a bunch of different little bugs. And I made it when I was probably like four or five. And it stood out to me because we'd moved several times. He'd been in different offices and things like that, which means he'd taken this picture with him for a long time. He loved this picture. And it still, you know, over 10 years later, had a prominent place in his office. So as a teenager, I'm like, okay, that's cool, I'll make him another one. So I decided to do him another drawing of bugs. I want to be really clear, I'm playing fast and loose with the word drawing. Because, look, my stick figures look like nobles from the French Revolution, like the heads do not attach to the bodies, it's a real big mess. Art was never in my future. So I draw him this picture and I give it to him and I'm super excited because it's almost exactly like the one that he's had for 12 years. And he was less than excited. And I couldn't figure out why. Why he loved this first picture that I'd given him so much and didn't seem all that impressed with the second one. So I realized they're basically the same picture. And what I was giving him was evidence that in the last 12 years, there had been no growth or development in my artistic skills. <laughs> what I'd given him at four was sentimental and cute and wonderful. But at 16, it was just sad. faith is like that. What we offer at the start is, is beautiful and wonderful. But if we're still at that same spot 10, 12 years later, it's just kind of sad. So welcome back to our study through 1 Peter and our series Stand Firm. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 starting in verse 8 this morning. And one of the things that Peter's been doing for the last several weeks has been this really awkward thing where he tells us that God's new community, that is the church, is going to be known by our submission. It's a word that nobody wants to hear. It's offensive. It's ugly. It's rude. It's probably the biggest swear word in the English language telling a bunch of people who like to worship and focus on themselves that they need to be in submission to something else. And yet, despite our dislike for this word, Peter just kind of keeps saying it. It's like, hey, you need to be in submission to governing authorities. 
That'll make you popular. You need to be in submission to your boss. You need to be in submission to your spouse. Just all over the place. It's submit over and over again. And so for the last five weeks, we've been focusing on this concept of submission. Well, good news. Today you get a reprieve. We're shifting gears from the subject of submission. As Peter is going to start encouraging us by reminding us of our calling and purpose in Christ Jesus to prepare us for the storms that are ahead. So 1 Peter is a book that is written challenging us to stand firm, calling us to hold on to Jesus, to stand fast in our relationship with him, to cling to him in hardships and trials. See, 1 Peter is a book that was written to Christians who were suffering because they loved Jesus. And it challenges us to focus on Jesus and to grow in Jesus, to mature in our faith. Because church, the purpose of the Christian life is not just to come to Jesus, but to grow in Jesus that we might become more like Jesus. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, we're going to just take a leisurely stroll through the text and kind of unpack things as we go. So verse 8, finally, let's stop right there. It's a lot to digest. Finally means that everything that has happened up until this point has been leading us to what Peter is about to say. So what Peter is going to give us in these verses is the application that is built off of everything that Peter has already said. So Peter's been teaching us about the attitude and actions of the people of God. He's been showing us how we as the people of God should seek to live. He's been reminding us of our purpose and of our calling by telling us, hey, we're meant to be strangers in a strange land because this is not our home. We're meant to leave behind our life of sin. We're meant to leave behind our old self. When we come to Jesus, we die to who we were and we pursue him. We're called to submission, right? The people of God should be known and defined by our submission because submission is the biblical mark of good conduct. He's teaching us what it means to grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus so that we can understand how to faithfully follow him. And what we're about to see is what Peter expects us to do because of what we have already seen. All of you, okay. So, all of you means, this is a really complicated word. So the translation for all in the New Testament comes from a word that literally means all. What that means is this does not matter, it doesn't matter, right? If you grew up Catholic or you grew up Baptist or you didn't come to Jesus until you were 55, this applies to everyone. There is no excuse, there is no exemption. You go, hey, is Jesus, is Peter really talking to me here? Yeah, all of you. If you fall into the category of all of you, then yes, Peter is talking to you. Have unity of mind, or literally to be harmonious and have the same mind. Peter calls the people of God to radical unity in Christ Jesus. There's a difference between unity and the religious concept of uniformity. Uniformity is where we all look exactly the same. Peter is not calling us to that. Nor is Peter calling us to unanimity, where we are all exactly the same, just copy and paste Christians across the board. Peter is calling us to unity. So what's the difference? 
Unity is diversity working together in harmony for the good of the community and the glory of Jesus. God made us different on purpose. Each of us has different gifts, passions, and focuses, different perspectives, points of view, and backgrounds that we bring to the community, and that's okay. In fact, that's by God's design. We should celebrate that, not shame people for it. Unity means we agree. We have the same focus. We have the same mission. We have the same purpose. It means we are aiming at the same target. Unity of mind means that the melody of the song of our life is Jesus. What makes it life is Jesus. Our focus is Jesus. Everything is built around Jesus. It's centered around Jesus. That doesn't mean that our approach and understanding of exactly how to apply all of that is going to be the same for each and every person. Each of us brings a unique harmony to the song. But the focus of the song will always be the melody that is Jesus. Unity of mind means we all agree that it's all about Jesus. And while there are some differences between us, we celebrate and we delight in those differences because we know it enhances the beauty of how we see God. Sympathy, which is literally just to feel what other people feel. When someone else hurts, it means you hurt with them because you care about them. One of the most frustrating things about the religious mindset that happens so easily in our hearts is we get so laser-focused on being right that we forget about how we are called to treat people in the process. We get so focused on making sure that we don't avoid something or we deal with this. And sometimes the religious approach to the Scripture is to wield it like a sledgehammer that we swing at people's heads. And we think that anything less than that, anything less than bashing people over the head with the Word of God is somehow an offense or a watering down of the gospel. And when we hold that mentality, here's my response. Go read the gospel a whole lot more. Spend a lot more time reading how Jesus treated people who didn't believe what he believed. Look at how Jesus treated lost, broken, hurting people. Look at how Jesus treated sinful people. Because the primary difference that we see between Jesus and the religious leaders is not the love for truth. The religious leaders loved the truth. They loved the letter of the law. They were fundamentalist, legalistic, and compassionless. They didn't have sympathy. They didn't have graciousness. They didn't have gentleness to their approach. Jesus is truth. Jesus loves the truth. But Jesus doesn't use truth as an excuse to treat people like garbage. The Bible teaches us to be gentle and respectful. Again and again, it tells us to be gentle and respectful, even in our presentation of truth. Because here's the reality. If your biblical truth does not have biblical love, it's not biblical truth. And let me explain that just a step further. That doesn't mean that we get to say, well, me hitting someone in the face with a sledgehammer of truth is loving. No, it's not. No one ever feels love by getting hit in the face with a sledgehammer. I don't know that from experience, but I just assume probably not likely. How we are called to present the truth is through the love of the gospel. It's through the grace of God. We are called to treat people with sympathy 
to care, not just to stand on truth. Truth is important. We're not ignoring that. But we're also being sympathetic, understanding, and compassionate in our presentation of it. Brotherly love, that means we love each other like we're family because guess what? We're family. We're a great, big, dysfunctional family that none of you actually probably signed up for or wanted. But here we are. That's the church. It's messy. It's ugly. But it's family. And the people that you see around you, the community of believers, we are bonded together by the blood of Jesus. And through Jesus, we become a spiritual family that the Bible teaches is actually more important than a biological family. That doesn't mean we diminish or lower the biological family. It means that we elevate the spiritual family above that. What that means, church, is how we are called to treat each other, to value each other, to prioritize each other, to focus on each other is the way we would with our own families because that's what we're called to be. This is a family, and we are to love each other, support each other, care for each other as such. A tender heart. A tender heart is to serve people. It's to care about people. It's to minister to hurting, broken people. We're called to be compassionate and to have a tender heart when it comes to others. And a humble mind. So Peter saves the hardest one for last. What's interesting, however, is that his list begins with unity of mind and ends with a humble mind. Those two things play off of each other. To be of humble mind is not just a facade of humility where somebody compliments you and you're like, no, stop, I'm not that great, come on. Humility of mind comes from the core of how you view yourself. Humility of mind means that you're not thinking about yourself. You're not focusing on yourself. You're not prioritizing yourself. The first thought in your head is not all about you. It's about other people. Best way to test a humble mind How do you receive new information? When somebody tells you something that doesn't fit with what you already believe, is your first assumption, I'm right, they're wrong, let me fix them, or is your first assumption, hey, maybe there's a nugget of truth to this that could actually grow and challenge what I believe? One of the most amusing things that I've observed over my time preaching is that there tend to be two types of people. When you preach a sermon, there's people that always assume that you're talking about them, and you have to be very clear that you're not sometimes, because I've had guys be like, man, I, you really got after me. I was like, I'm talking about biblical women. How did you think that was about you? But they fought, because they're looking for ways to apply it. They're looking for ways to own it. They're looking for ways to grow and challenge themselves, and, and that's a wonderful thing. And then there's the people that naturally assume that you're always talking about somebody else. Oh, you can't mean me. I already got that figured out. Can't mean me. I got that. I've already, I've mastered that one. But you know who would really need to hear that? This guy over here that's driving me crazy. No, definitely talking about you. The latter is, is not a humble mind. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. There are two layers to this command. The first is a passive command that demands that we do nothing. We don't focus on revenge. We don't think about revenge. We don't pursue revenge. We don't get revenge. 
Right? And so what the passive command of this is, is if someone does evil to you, you don't do evil back. Literally, you fulfill the command by not doing anything. That's the easy part. You go, hey, wait, that's the easy part? Somebody says something nasty to me, I'm going to say something nasty back. Nope. Somebody does something wrong to me, I'm going to make sure I, they don't do that again. I'll let them know who they're messing with. Nope. How's that the easy part? <laughs> let me just tell you this. Great comfort that you can have. If the first part of that seems difficult, the second part is so much worse. The second part is an active command. And what it says is, don't repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. What that means is if somebody wrongs you, if somebody does evil to you, if somebody wounds you in some way, you are called to respond by blessing that person. That's not fun. What that means is, guys, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you don't blare on the horn and then cuss them out because it doesn't count as cussing if there's no one else in the car. What it means... <laughs> Sorry, that was a little bit of confession. Um, <laughs> what it means is if they cut you off in traffic, you follow them to Starbucks and you pay for their coffee. I get it. Christians don't shop at Starbucks. I understand. We demonstrate our devotion to Jesus by treating people with the love and grace of the gospel regardless of how they treat us. You see, how we are called to treat people in the Word of God has nothing to do with how they treat us and everything to do with how Jesus treats us. So we are called to be a blessing. We are called to bless people regardless of how they treat us. If they've wronged us, we bless them. If they've hurt us, they've bl we bless them. If they are an unjust leader, we bless them. We are called to be a blessing to every person that Jesus puts in our path. The question that we need to ask is, are we? Do people feel blessed because they have encounters with you? When they see you coming, is there a little part of them that's like, oh, this is going to be good? Or when people see you coming, do they kind of go? <laughs> Are you a blessing to people who you don't agree with? Are you a blessing to people that you interact with? Because that's what Peter's calling us to be. Be a blessing to your employer. Be a blessing to authorities over you, even if those authorities are unjust and unfair. Be a blessing to your spouse. Be a blessing to everyone. And you say, well, hold on. What if they, let me just stop you. You can literally fill in that blank with anything, and it changes nothing. There is no aspect of how the gospel commands us to teach, to treat, and behave towards other people that is conditional on how they treat us. It's, con it's conditional on Jesus. And so when we use that as an excuse, well, you don't understand what they did. You don't, they did it first. They started it. They did this. When we use other people's actions as an excuse to justify our behavior, what we are in fact saying is what they did means more to me than what Jesus did on the cross. The sad state of the church is that we are a community that is known for the opposite of what we are called to be. We are quick to criticize, quick to condemn, 
quick to complain, quick to tear each other down. We treat other people with the faith like sharks with blood in the water. Just give us the excuse to tear you apart. That's how the Christian community tends to behave. We're slow to encourage, slow to support, slow to come alongside and build each other up. We are a community that is known not for the love and grace of the gospel, but for being judgmental and hypocritical. We could not have missed the mark that Jesus gave us by any more than we have. Good news is, can't get worse. It's all uphill from here. We are called to be a blessing to all people. In all things, to be a blessing. This is the purpose. In fact, as Peter says, it is this, for this you were called to bless. The purpose of Jesus' calling us was for us to be a blessing to the world. And that's what we should do. We are called to be a blessing so that we can obtain a blessing. Do you know that there is no guarantee in Scripture that you will receive a blessing from God unless you are a blessing to others? Verses 10 through 12, Peter shifts, and he quotes from Psalm 34. It's a psalm of David that David wrote when he was running and hiding, living in caves because King Saul was trying to murder him. It says, for whoever desires to love life and to see good, day, de- see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So right after Peter tells us, don't get revenge, Peter says, watch your mouth. Because here's the deal. It is so much easier to control your actions than it is to control your words. And for many Christians, the greatest shame that we bring to the kingdom of God is not with what we do, it's with what we say. The careless, inconsiderate, hurtful, thoughtless words that come out of our mouths. How often do we let ourselves gossip, complain, slander, tear one another down, criticize other people, diminish them, demean them, make them feel lesser because in our insecurity, putting them down makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves? How often do we allow ourselves to speak negative, harsh, or cruel things about other people to complain and criticize them again and again and again? without any sense of guilt or shame for doing so. Luke 6.45, Jesus says it is out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. And some of us are very quick to reveal the ugliness, pettiness, jealousy, and depravity that exists in our hearts. What we say matters. Our words are important, and this command, this commission to control and tame our tongue is not new to what Peter is saying. It is uttered all throughout the Bible so that we are without excuse. You know what's not in any of the commands is a condition that makes it appropriate. God doesn't say, hey, watch your mouth unless you're really angry. Hey, watch your mouth unless the person frustrated you. There is no reason that we can give, no justification that we can give that makes God go, okay, I guess it's all right that you lost control of your tongue. He says, no, control your tongue. This is a fundamental component of Christianity. You need to watch your mouth. Because life and death are in the power of the tongue. We need to be far more careful with what we say, how we speak to and about people. 
You see, you cannot be a mature follower of Jesus without learning to tame your tongue. And for most of us, the first thing that we do when we wake up, before our head leaves the pillow, before our feet hit the floor, should be to pray and to ask God to give us the strength to glorify Him with our words. To give us the strength and the maturity to speak in a way that honors and glorifies the gospel. Because we need help learning to control our tongues. And so every day, that should be the first thing that we ask for. God, give me, give me the strength to fill me with love and grace that that might be reflected in the words that come out of my mouth. Verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. When we become to Jesus, we leave behind our old self. We leave behind the sin. We leave behind the habits of the past, and we pursue the things of Jesus. So we turn away from sin, and we turn towards righteousness. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Who likes to argue? Who likes to debate? Who likes to post controversial thoughts on Facebook? Okay, I'm going to get myself in trouble. In the name of our free speech, in the name of speaking our mind, being real, speaking our peace, ironically, tends to rob the person next to you of it. We engage in so many discussions and debates and things. For a community that claims to love the Prince of Peace, we spend a lot of time robbing other people of that peace. Pursue peace. The Bible warns us many places, especially 1 Timothy and Titus, about the dangers of engaging in quarreling behavior, divisive behavior, getting into needless, unnecessary arguments. We should pursue peace rather than fight and quabble and squabble over all sorts of other little things that in the scheme of the kingdom aren't that important. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the first time, this is the second time in five verses that Peter has noted that our prayer life can be hindered by our behavior. The first is the husbands and their treatment of their wives. The second is here in our treatment and response to God. Which is so strange. In a culture that seems to believe that we're entitled to speak to God whenever we want. That God's just sitting there waiting for us to talk to him. And the moment we do, he should be so lucky as to hear us pray. And we think it doesn't matter what we live. It doesn't matter what I do. God's going to be there waiting for me to cry out to him. That's not exactly what the Bible teaches. Why do we think that we can live for ourselves, ignore God, reject his instructions, do whatever we want, and then just call on him for help when we get into trouble. Let me be clear. I'm not talking about people who are seeking God. 
The Bible is very clear about that. When we, if we, when we're turning from our sins and genuinely seeking God, when people who are turning to God for the first time are returning to God like the prodigal son, when we wonder and cry out to God because we are genuinely seeking him, God is faithful to hear and to respond. But that same promise is not given to people who are calling out to God because they want him to bail them out of the trouble they got into so they can go back to ignoring him tomorrow. Our relationship with God, our pursuit and focus on God, impacts God's receptiveness to our prayers. Those who seek Jesus will always find that He hears them. When we love Jesus, we obey Jesus. When we obey Jesus, we grow at Jesus. And that's what Peter's showing us how, what, how to do. What these listed out for us here are these nine ways in which we can grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus. These are milestones to measure our maturity. See, one of the growing trends in the church today is to identify ourselves as children of God. We talk about it, we sing songs about it, and rightly so. That is our identity. We should celebrate that. We should rejoice in that. That is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But sometimes it seems that we forget that being a child of God does not require us to be childish in the things of God. Who you are 10 years after giving your life to Jesus should not be the same as who you were when you first turned to Him. We are called to come to Jesus. We are called to grow in Jesus, to mature in Jesus. So what I want to challenge you to do is take the nine things that we looked at, verses 8 and 9, list them out. And make a little chart to test how mature you are in that area. Are you an infant? Are you a toddler? Are you a child? Are you a teenager? Or are you a fully mature adult in that area? And then I want you to find somebody who's close to you, who will be honest with you, who knows you well, and ask them if they agree with your assessment of yourself. We are called to mature in Jesus, not just to come to him. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord as holy, as always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter is teaching us how to grow and mature, how to hold on to Jesus, how to cling to Jesus so that we can be prepared for the storms that are ahead because in life there's going to be storms. Some of the storms that we're going to face are going to be because of our sin. Those are self-inflicted wounds. Some of the storms that we face are going to be because we live in a fallen, sinful world. That is the shame of the reality that we are in. And some of the storms that we endure, we're going to endure because we love Jesus in a world that doesn't. That is suffering for the sake of righteousness. That suffering we should rejoice in. That suffering we should delight in. That we should seek because there is no greater honor than to be found worthy of suffering for Jesus. 
But what Peter's telling us here is most of the time, when you apply the teachings of God's word to your life, it'll keep you out of trouble. Most of the time, when you live for Jesus and you grow in Jesus and you pursue Jesus, it will bring you good in this life. That's the normative process because most of what Jesus, because what Jesus tells us to do is, is good. It's a blessing for people. But sometimes, because we live in a fallen, broken world, sometimes following Jesus will get you into trouble. What do we do then? We prepare. To prepare is to be ready in advance. Are we ready? Remember, this commission is given to all of you. Not to elders, not to pastors, not to some fancy spiritual people that are set apart from everybody else. To all of us, we are given the commission to always be prepared. We need to be ready at all times to tell people about Jesus. We need to be ready at all times to tell them who he is and what he is like. He's saying, you know, how am I supposed to do that? I'd go through training. Okay, so don't exegete the Latin Vulgate. Good news, you don't even have to know what that means. You don't have to approach it from an academic, I'm going to prove the existence of God using the scientific method of nature. But you do need to be able to tell someone who Jesus is. You do need to be able to say, here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus has done for me. Here's why I believe in him. Here's why I love him. Here's why I follow him. You need to be able to tell people who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. That is the commission for every Christian. And if you're not ready to do that, then you need to start practicing that so that you can be ready because that's what it means to be prepared. Now, the second part of that is that this command is not a command of proclamation. It's a command of response. Always be ready to give a reason for anyone who asks. Well, that command is predicated on people asking. So what Peter is doing in this text, he goes, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to live because this is what's going to make people ask. They need to see the light of the gospel at work in you or they're never going to ask about the hope. Because if they don't see hope, they're not going to ask about hope. If they don't see joy, they're not going to ask about joy. If they don't see love, they're not going to ask about love. People don't ask about things they don't see. So we're called to live, to follow Jesus, to mature and grow in these areas that people may see Jesus in us, may ask and then we are ready to give them an answer. See, when you live for Jesus, truly live for Jesus, people will notice. When you grow and mature in the gospel, people are going to notice. When you have joy in suffering, people are going to notice. When you have hope in storms, people are going to notice. When you treat people with the love of the gospel, when you respond to evil with good, people are going to notice. Some of them are not going to like that. But some of them are going to ask. Church, our actions and our attitudes are the opportunities that we have to grow in Jesus, to become more like Jesus, and to show the world around us who Jesus is. We have the opportunity through our lives to shine as a light in the darkness that people might see our good deeds 
and give glory to our Father in heaven. We have the opportunity to show the world what it means to follow Jesus and to live for him. And we do that by fulfilling the purpose of our calling, which is to be a blessing. We bless God. We bless others. See, the more we focus on Jesus, the more we realize that Jesus is all we will ever need. That our source of hope, church, is not in the things of this world, in the shifting sands of money or power, possession or comfort. That those things are cheap and fading. Our only hope is in Jesus. Our life is in Jesus. Our joy is in Jesus. And so in all things, in all ways, we focus our lives around Jesus. We center them on Jesus because he is the melody of life. So we fix our eyes on him. We make everything that we do, everything that we say, even the actions and attitudes of our hearts, we make them about Jesus, that we might grow in him and that we might have the opportunity to show him to others. So this morning, we're going to take communion together. For those of you who are believers, if you have given your life to Jesus, this is an invitation to all of you. And what we do in this time is we remember, we fix our eyes on the Jesus who gave his life for us, that we might be reminded that we are to do nothing less than to give our lives to him and to live our lives for him. We are told that whenever we take these elements, we are to do so in remembrance of Jesus. One of the things that I usually tell myself in my head when I take communion: the more I take your body, the body of Jesus into my life, make it a little bit me, a little bit more like you. The more we take Jesus into ourselves, the more from the inner parts of ourselves Jesus should flow out of us. And so that's what we're going to do today. Not just remember, but to transform, to let the body and the blood that was broken for us focus our hearts and minds on him. Let's take it together. One of the things that was so difficult for the Greek minds to get over in the New Testament was the concept of God dying. Christianity promoted a single God who was greater than all the gods in Greek mythology, and yet he died. The Greeks had no concept for that. Immortals were immortal. They were incapable of death. Sometimes it's easy to forget just how significant it is that God would let himself bleed us. It's easy to overlook the significance that God, the all-powerful creator, the uncreated one, would let his body be broken and his blood be spilled for us. And if he had the humility to do that, we should have the humility to live for him. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we praise you that you would love us so dearly, that you would set a way, that you would make a way for us to have hope and joy in you. And God, my prayer is that you would drive and inspire each of us to focus on you, to fix our hearts on you, to devote ourselves to you. Because the things of this world, they will never satisfy us the way that only you can. So God, as we leave this place this morning, may we seek to live for your glory and shine the light of the gospel in the world that people might see us, that they might hear our words, and they might be drawn to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.